Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, episode 13, Retiring on Real Estate. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. Today, our guest, Phil Filial, has built a portfolio of 60 units and is hitting $30,000 a month in cash flow in just 15 months. Listen in and find out how he did it. So today we have Filial, an investor in Charlotte. Phil, thanks for coming on. Would you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks for inviting me, Jim. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm a Brit, as you can probably hear. So you're wondering what the heck this guy's doing uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, I, I married an American in London who was working over there, and I came across to uh, the stateside about 10 years ago. I've been like an exec in IT, selling and marketing um, large computers to big banks for years and years and years. And uh, my my wife was an investment banker. So we made some decent coin between us. So we have quite a bit of savings. So that's my context. You know, I'm not a guy that's uh, going into investing with uh, a small amount of money. I'm going in with a, a good amount of savings. The context for me was my wife uh, really didn't like her job in banking. I don't think that many people do. And so my job is really to help her get out. And that means turning savings into cash flow at a much bigger rate of return than, you know, 4, 4% that you might get in an annuity or something like that. So really, that was my, my job. And, uh, and unfortunately, about a couple of years ago, I actually lost my job in IT uh, in my mid, early to mid 50s. And I really struggle to get back in. You know, it's one of those things where the, the industry is moving on at a tremendous pace and you're a dinosaur and you're not. So let's try and do something completely different. So, so I, 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 my plan B at that time was to say, okay, got a bunch of savings. Let's go full time into real estate and see if I can actually translate that into long-term cash flow. So, so that's a little bit of the background as to where I was. We had done a little bit of real estate prior to me going seriously on it. And I'd had a kind of an accidental portfolio where I'd just been lazy uh, and not bothered selling a house because I, I, it was just difficult. So I thought, okay, let's rent it out and uh, kind of done quite well at that. And I thought, oh, heck, this is, this is a decent game. You can make some actual money out of this. But it was entirely accidental. And I'd actually grown from a, from a completely accidental start to it to seven properties, some of which were in Savannah in Georgia, which is, you know, about three hours drive away, something like that. And they'd done decently for us. And then I'd arrived at this point in my life where I needed to do something different. And we looked around to try and figure out, well, where are we going to invest? Savannah had very high costs associated with it. I had a tough climate. The tax structure was very expensive there. We looked at uh, South Carolina and again, with a homestead uh, situation there, the taxes were very expensive for an out of state. And it was also a bit of a way away. And then I suddenly discovered this relatively small town um, just outside of Charlotte. And it's called Gastonia. Uh, you probably don't know it, but um, you will, Jim. But th that was a town that had uh, lost a huge amount of jobs about 15 years ago with NAFTA. Uh, where milled uh, employment had basically moved out. And, and so the, the town really became a difficult place to, to live and values went down tremendously. But it was adjacent to Charlotte, which is part of this huge northeast to southeast super cycle of, of job movements. And Charlotte was growing tremendously. And Charlotte was beginning to run out of space and it was certainly getting expensive for people. So Gastonia became a town that was no longer an awful place to be, it became essentially a suburb of West Charlotte and it was a decent commute in. 
And so investment started to pop up and it was, we were at the right point in the cycle to say, well, okay, actually that's just down the road from me. Let's see if we can kind of go into that. And we, you know, I'm a, as a computer guy, I'm kind of mathematical on my basis. So I'm not averse to putting some financial models together in a spreadsheet pretty quickly. Uh, I yeah. won't, won't make it crazy, stupidly advanced, et cetera, but I, I know enough of what I'm doing with that to, to, to model some scenarios out. And so we were looking at basically comparisons of cap rates and uh, uh, in different areas. So that's how I look at stuff is, uh, is on, on cap rates. So what I wanted to do is basically create some kind of investment hypothesis of what am I trying to achieve here? How am I trying to achieve it? So the, what I was trying to achieve was actually, my goal was to get 20K a month free and clear cash flow in order to replace mine and my wife's income in order that we could essentially step away and she could step away from her job that she loved so much. And in order to do that, I figured out I needed an order of 40 properties, something like that. So, so that was really the goal and to, to get to that in really as quick a time as I could without taking excessive risks. You know, I, I'm comfortable with taking risks, but they've got to be measured risks. I wanted to do something that was efficient. And to my mind, efficiency meant being kind of geographically tight. So it didn't make sense to me to have a team of contractors, you know, one of which was working on a, on a house in one place and one of which was working on a house 30 miles separated. I wanted to do property management myself, and that was consistent with doing something that was geographically tight. Uh, so, so I basically decided, okay, let's go into Gastonia. Uh, let's go for a decent portfolio there. I wanted to target about a 12% cap rate, and I thought that was achievable. Um, and in fact, I've actually done much better than that. I've actually achieved 15%. Uh, and that 40 properties, I've actually achieved uh, 60 properties. Wow. By 20K, I've achieved a little bit north of 30K. That's fantastic. Uh, and what was that time frame in? About 15 months. 15 months. Yeah. So from zero to 60 units and 30,000 a month. And that's Correct. incredible. Correct. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dive into this. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't think your position is unique where you're a high income earner or your whole family is and you're looking for another way to retire. What other things did you look at besides real estate and what brought you to single family rentals as the way to go? Yeah, that's a really good question. My wife was in banking. I sold computers to big banks and understood the capital markets well. We'd invested our own portfolio. So I'm very familiar with stocks and shares. I'm familiar with options. I'm familiar with, with all that good sort of advanced financial stuff. It doesn't scare me. But frankly, the control that you get over your life is horrible. You know, you, you just frankly are not in control over your investment returns to a large extent. You, you kind of have to white knuckle it through. You have to be super, super, super active and white knuckle it, or it's a kind of set it and forget it and, and hope that the world doesn't turn against you. And you look at the volatility of the markets and the crazy stuff that's, that always happens all the time. And it's especially crazy right now uh, with trade wars and everything. I think we wanted to stay in stocks and shares, but not for it to be the be all and end all. We wanted to get away from something that was quite so volatile and into something that had a much more predictive return and frankly, a higher return. And, uh, you know, having been in sort of accidental real estate investment, so to speak, it was pretty clear that this was, it showed the hope of, of much better returns if you could manage it well. And I think, 
for me, going into something part-time and going into full t- something full-time, I think they were very different things. So before we'd done real estate investing part-time, and now I was going to concentrate it on it, and it was going to be my life. And I was very comfortable about that. And, and I had that luxury because I had a wife that worked, and I had a, a bunch of savings. So you know, I was fairly confident that it wasn't rocket science. The business model was essentially highly sound. The thing I tested in, in the area I was investing in was, well, what's the rental demand like? And it was pretty clear that rents were going up, that capital values were going up, that there was huge economic activity in this area, and it wasn't going to stop anytime soon. Even if there was a bit of a recession, it was still going to be somewhat stable, and you were going to be completely unlinked from the stock market. So to me, real estate was the way to go. Uh, Buy and hold was obviously the way to go for me as well. I think a lot of people want to go into fix and flip. I think that's a lot more risky. And if you've got a little bit more money, then buy and hold is, is absolutely yeah. the way to go. So, so that was kind of what, what led to it all. Single family residence, that was really a nature of, well, what's the market that I'm in? I chose this town of Gastonia where I could get really nice cap rates. That was what most of their stock was. It was all, a lot of it was built in the 1950s, kind of mill houses, if you like. Most of them weren't in great shape. They'd been neglected in this sort of bad period post NAFTA. So you could pick properties up cheaply, you could put some uh, contractor time into them and you could turn them in, you could basically save them and turn them into something quite decent. And they were attractive from a Charlotte person's perspective. So, so I always consider this from the perspective of, of a customer. So my customer is a tenant and my average customer is somewhere in Charlotte. They're in an apartment. Uh, it's kind of small. They want to raise a family. They can't really in an apartment. It's just not a great place to do it. The rents are going up. Can I get somewhere that's has got more space, that's got more separation, uh, mm-hmm. as in single family home versus apartment, and is a little bit cheaper? And the answer is yes, you can. So I see a lot of people flowing out of apartments in the city into single family homes just a little bit further out with a slightly higher commute. And... Um, you know that that's been correct. That's that's how it's been. That's awesome. And like, I think it's really interesting the way that you analyzed the market and picked Gastonia. For people who aren't familiar with Charlotte, what made you pick that suburb over other suburbs that are appear pretty similar, like similar purchase prices, similar rent growth? What made you choose that one? Yeah, I happen to live relatively close to it. Okay. Uh, was number one. <laughs> that's convenient. Um, and I got into an investment community that was kind of focused on it and it, and their thing was, shh, don't talk about this. The returns here are staggering. You know, you don't have to pay much money. Yeah. And it was all a bit of a secret and I was in on the secret uh, ahead of the real growth that happened. I mean, yeah. I have to say, we, we've put in about half a million and I've made 911,000 on my last count from a capital perspective. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, so the, the growth has been staggering. I think I might be undercalling it at that. And for like listeners who are in positions you were in like only 15 months ago, how active and involved have you been in real estate to be able to get these above average returns? Like to find out about Gastonia, like were you active? Were you going to like meetups and stuff full time, part time? Uh, a lot of it I would say was kind of... Book research, I, I mean, I, I, the internet is a wonderful place and you can get fabulous information uh, without being beholden to anyone. 
And so a lot of it was that. Then I, uh, when I had my hypothesis, I then went up to meetups to kind of find out more about it. And I found out that, yep, the hypothesis seemed to be correct. There were a lot of people thinking the same way. And if you don't move fast, you're going to miss the boat. Yeah. Uh, and that was what my real motivation was. This sounds really stupid, but we we saw on Zillow a portfolio of 44, uh, not a portfolio, one property, as it showed, 44 bedrooms, 22 bathrooms, which clearly wasn't. It was clearly a, a package. Yeah. But we saw this thing and we thought, well, heck, <laughs> yeah, let's do that then. And that is actually what we ended up doing. So then the thing was, well, okay, we're going to get 22 properties in, in one purchase. So we're going to go long and strong with one big entrance. I think we probably slightly overpaid, but I don't care. It's been so valuable. I think one of the things that you learn if you're doing buy and hold is that your entry price is less important. If you're doing fix and flip, your, your entry price is, is incredibly important. But if you're doing buy and hold, you know, whether you pay a few thousand more or a few thousand less, honestly, you do the cap rate numbers on that and it doesn't matter. You do the cash on cash returns on that. It doesn't matter. It's negligible. So if you're a buy and hold investor, you can go in there in a more confident way with a surefire knowledge that you're actually going to win a deal as opposed to a fix and flip guy who's going to be, frankly, brutally constrained by their, their entry price. So you just got a lot more flexibility. So buy and, on the whole, I've gone on with pretty fair prices and I've won most of the deals that I wanted because I was willing to pay just a tiny bit more than most. Yeah. And because it really didn't matter. Yeah, because um, you're in it for the long term. Yeah, you know you're going to increase the I think people get hung like, up on, oh my God, I have to get the best deal. I have to, you know, I, but I'm trying yeah. to get the best possible deal when everyone else is trying to get that best possible deal. You can't do that. You just can't do that. Um, you're just going to lose lots and lots and lots. And that's fine. And, and uh, if you're prepared to do that, that's fine. But for me, I took the broader perspective and it's, and it's actually about the cap rate. It's actually about the cash on cash return. And, you know, your mental effort of going around lots and lots and lots of different deals and getting disappointed because you lost that one, you get disappointed because you lost that one and that one. Yeah. Pay a tiny bit more, actually win them, get control. Yeah, I feel like a lot of investors make that mistake where they get a really good deal on one property and then they expect every other deal to be similar to that great deal. Mm -hmm. And they may pass up on opportunities that still hit their criteria, but it's just not quite as amazing of the deal yes, as exactly. the previous one. And for me, with this with this one, you know, it was a very unique one where I was trying to get a, a package all at once in order to basically say, okay, give me scale. Because I think what was important to me was, okay, I'm going to need contractors. Have I ever dealt with contractors in the past? No, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what, what I'm doing. So... The only way that I'm not going to get essentially gang raped by a, by a contractor is by presenting them with scale. I'm sorry if I... No, you're good. I am English. I, I speak with... I have a rich vocabulary. <laughs> so I have to present scale as my way of getting credibility with people. And I have to be really careful to get someone I can trust. I need a team that I can trust. And if you have scale, then you can get credibility with that team quickly because they need you and you need them. It's a very symbiotic relationship with the contractor. And I think what you, what you realize when you get into to, to real estate as an investor is contractors are incredibly important to you. They're also very difficult to deal with. They keep you up at night. Things never go as you want. 
there's always problems, there's always unexpected stuff. And, and I think part of your growth as an investor is not getting panicked by situations. You're going to get bad stuff happen all the time. And now, uh, I, did I get panicked? No, I actually didn't because I've set my expectation that bad stuff was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you had the, the team that you trusted, then you could get through any particular situation. You might have to throw a little money at it, um, but that's not the end of the world and it might take you a little longer than you thought. So I think, and, and the part of the reason I was somewhat relaxed about this is I do a bunch of financial modeling. So I do cash flow modeling and I do capital modeling. I do monthly cash flow modeling. So I can scenario out, okay, with this, this upfit of this particular property, what if the, the two months that I'm expected take six months, you know, because yeah. it might, if you, especially if you're doing five, five or ones, it might well. And, it, and that has been the case. So I've, I've wanted to know that there was always sufficient money in the bank that that's going to be okay. And, you know, it's a good thing too, because lots of stuff happened like that. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much. And yes, you lose some, some cash flow and yes, it might cost you a little bit more, but you know that there's going to be problems. Uh, and so you just have to be, have the financial depth to, to deal with that situation. I've got colleagues that have not modeled that accurately and had to sell that parts of their portfolio off because they just couldn't handle the shock, if you like. So anyway, so, so that's, that's a little bit about a very circuitous answer to that question. I'm sure I've rambled a bit, but I hope that's helped. No, no, no. You, you talked a little bit about getting to 20K free and clear. So are you leveraging your properties or are you just trying to buy, pay cash for them that way, everything you make? Oh, yeah. I, I, that's, that's an important discussion. I am leveraging. Partially, I'm lightly leveraging. So the way I approached that, that was like the really critical decision from the start is, okay, you want to buy these 22 properties, how are you going to do that? Did we have the cash in the bank? No. I mean, I needed to, to raise like 800K for that. And did I have 800K? No, I didn't. We had at that time probably about 300K. So how do we bring that, square that circle? So you can't in that scenario where you've got a portfolio, you're not going to get a Fannie and Freddie style mortgage. That's not going to get you anywhere at all. I did have a solo 401k or a 401k that I converted to a solo 401k. So I, I took some of my portfolio when I threw it at that. Solo 401k is a great structure. I'm sure you've had talked about that with, with people in the past, but you know, simply put, I rolled my, uh, my ex-employer's 401k into uh, an IRA and then into, a, uh, into this 401k structure that I could basically have a checkbook and go write checks go for buy to properties go with. buy properties um, free and clear. And that's been great. So that took a part of that, of that 22. And the rest I did through a home equity line of credit. I had some investment properties and I had a principal residence that had equity in it. The investment properties, you can usually only drive it up to 60% LTV so that I didn't have a whole heap I could get from those. But the uh, if it's your residence, then you can get 80% and that was enough. So I could raise about 320 or something like that. So between those three, I, mm -hmm. could, I could get there. And we also had equity in our uh, portfolio in, in Savannah, in Georgia. So I basically said, 
going away from Savannah in Georgia and I've sold all those properties now. So I've 1031 those and done other stuff with my, with my portfolio outside of these 22 that I talked about. But I think the financing is really important. And I think, I think it's important to match your maturities. So uh, if you've got, when I say match your maturities, I mean, um, if you're a buy and hold investor, you don't t- t- seek short-term financing. If you're a uh, fix and flip investor, you don't t- seek long-term financing. So you match your maturities. So that was kind of fairly clear to me as a sort of financial person. It's like, well, that's, that's the statement of the obvious. So don't make that mistake. So I've seen investors get hard money, short-term funding uh, to go and do buy and hold properties. No, big mistake. Don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. Yeah. Um, if you can possibly, possibly, possibly avoid it, uh, you know, and I could possibly avoid it. So I, I didn't do that. So that was how I got into, into it, most of it in the first place. Um, and so essentially I become a cash purchaser at that point because the HELOC has essentially creates this ability to be a cash purchaser. You have no liens on your property. Uh, then having spent a while putting money into them and bringing the portfolio up, uh, doing a bunch of refurbs, then I sought a blanket loan. So I went along to one of the, the local banks and uh, who were probably the most aggressive and most helpful in this kind of market for doing commercial style blanket loans. And the blanket loan, just put it, put it simply, is you have a portfolio of properties and you say, okay, here's 15 properties, take a lien against that at all 15 and lend me money against it. So I essentially refied mm-hmm. and that gave me half a mil to do my, essentially the next phase of my, uh, my investment. Can you talk a little bit about like on a single house level, what does a normal rental look like for you on purchase renovation and then how much you're taking the current or previous rent and then to what it is now? Yeah, sure. Um, I've probably got two models on those. They're, they're quite different. So I think they separate in, in two ways. The first is, do I buy it cash or do I get a mortgage against it or some kind of loan against it? And I'm probably buying it cash, but some of them I'll get a loan against. So for example, if I'm buying a four unit apartment complex, then that's worthwhile getting a Fannie and Freddie loan. If I'm buying one, nah, not so much because you've only got so many chips that you can play with with the, with your traditional bank loans. So if it's a smaller property, you know, 60K, something like that, then I'm probably paying cash for it. And, you know, I'm probably seeking a reasonable deal, but nothing spectacular. I might get lucky. I might not. And I'm not going to be too wound up about that either way, as long as it meets my criteria. Um, as I say, I'm seeking 12%. I might do better. I might do worse. Some have been as high as 19 on a cap rate perspective. I'm averaging 15 so I'm pretty happy about all of that, but 12 is what I need to get. The rents, I'm seeing in my area, people get a little bit lazy and I think they they tend not to raise rents on people. They don't meet market rents. So I'm often getting properties where someone hasn't raised the rent in four years. They've had a stable tenant there. Uh, they kind of let the maintenance go a little bit. It might need a new roof. It might need a new AC. It might be really bad. It might be unlivable and there's no tenant there in the mm-hmm. first place. So there's, you know, there's the two scenarios. I mean, it's not too bad and you might need to do a little bit of fix up. So basically my model is let, let it stabilize, observe the property for a while. If they naturally go, because uh, the, the tenant, you know, maybe in six months they, they want to turn it, 
and go somewhere else. And that's fine. If they go, that's great. If they don't and they're well below market rent, I'll raise it on them and they'll either go or not. And I'll raise it to market. Nothing, nothing spectacular, but it might be $600 going to $750 or something like that. And they may say, oh, I don't like that. I want a better deal elsewhere. And they'll go. And that gives you the opportunity then to go and like save the property, do what you need to do, because generally you need to do stuff that requires the tenant to be out. Then uh, I'm probably putting several thousand dollars into it. It might be 10K because it could, what Mm -hmm. what I found, for example, in some of those package deals is that people were paying 750 a month for really quite odious properties that were fundamentally unsound. And I looked at them and I thought, I have no idea how you as a human being are living there. And they've, they've left uh, after a while and uh, they've gone somewhere else. And, and I hadn't even been in the house and I, I'd go in and I had one just a few days ago and I went in and bounced up and down on the floors and oh, that's, that's a little springy. So, and all the windows need replacing and the roof needs replacing and the AC needs updating. So, uh, you know, you're looking at, I don't know, you know that, that one was, I think, 12000 to do. And, and you're going to get a little bit more rent for it in that scenario. And it's probably not justifiable. But if your goal is to have that property for a long time, you don't want a, a property that's dissolving into the soil. Right. You know, you want to put some nice termite proof new girders and joists in there. And people get scared about this stuff. It's not that bad. If you've got a contractor that you reasonably trust to do that, the incremental cost of replacing all those uh, joists and girders uh, and subfloors, I don't know, it's probably a couple of thousand. It's not a whole heap. It's not as scary as everyone thinks. It's, it's not 20 no, or 30 it, grand. It's not. Yeah. And then you can bounce up and down those floors all day long and you know they're going to be good for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, so, so, so that's what I do. Um, I, I like to be ethical. I, you know, t- to my mind, you've got three sets of people that you have to treat well. When you buy a property from someone, you want to treat everyone well in that transaction. Uh, I, I don't believe in win losers. I believe in win wins. I hold that for my tenants. I hold that for my contractors. Uh, there's lots of people out there that that take the attitude that. Life is transactional, you know, essentially the old Donald Trump attitude, uh, if you like, there's a win-lose um, and I'm going to win and you're going to lose. I wholly do not agree with that 100%. 100%. And, and I think I'm, I don't know if I'm unusual in that regard or not, but that way I think you create a sustainable business yeah. because people want to work with you. Tenants want to stay with you. My contractors trust me. I trust them. We need each other. I'm always going to treat them fairly. They, and I know they're going to save me from situations that they don't have to. And they're going to treat me fairly too. And I can sleep at night that way. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I get 0.1% less return. Do I care about that versus being able to sleep at night and feel decent about myself? No, I'll take that every time over. So, so that's my kind of mindset, how I approach it. Yeah. That's a very rambly approach. I have no idea what we said. No, I, I think it's good that like you approach it from the long term of not just trying to put lipstick, but actually fix some of the problems and liabilities on a property. So that long term wise, I think you end up pretty far ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's where I'm coming from is this for me is an investment that's going to run for 20, 30 years. You know, it, the idea is it's my pension. 
I'm not taking it as something I need to achieve, you know, within 18 months and then I'm out of it. And that's just where I'm personally coming from. But I think if you've got a lot, you know, a bunch of money and you're trying to translate that bunch of money into cash flow, it's a much healthier way of looking at it. And it's a viable way of looking at it. I do my own property management at some point if I want to go off and tour around the world or something like that, which is entirely an option, I can push that out to somebody or employ someone to do that. But right now I want to take control. Yeah. So back to managing properties, you're going to, you're managing all your properties on your own. Do you feel there's a a number you're going to hit where you can't do that anymore? Will that affect your scalability at all? Yes. So I've reached my goal now. So my goal was 40 properties. I then reset my goal at, at 60. And I think there's there's a problem over that and it, it immediately get, kind of goes to your emotions of, okay, well, what's wrong with you if you're resetting your goal all the time? You know, if you created some kind of, I'm addicted to pain meds, I'm addicted to buying properties. And maybe the answer to that is a slight yes, it, it, but it's gone from the point where I can say to my wife, okay, you're, you're free to do with what you want with your life. You can work, you can not work, it doesn't matter. And now real estate for us is a hobby for which we get joy and fun because we like it. We know what we're doing. We've got yeah. a trusted team. So it's now fun for us. It's entertainment as well as being a, a profitable business. So it's kind of like the, the remunerative hobby that everyone kind of wants to do as opposed to being what it was for the last 18 months for me, which was my job. It's now become my hobby. Uh, that said, you know, doing property management is hard work. There's a point where probably about 80 properties, that's tr- traditionally about the, the level that most property managers say 80 properties, one property manager is about right. So I'm getting up towards that. I find I can do more than that. You know, I can still buy properties, I can renovate them and I can manage them. And, you know, it doesn't present too much stress to me. So I think that 80 is probably a little light. But there's a point where you say, well, you know, I can I can push that off. Being the owner, I can get someone to work part-time for me and do some of that stuff. So I can probably start to slide that off in order that, you know, you can go on the, you know, cruise to the Far East or something yeah. that you might choose to do. So and I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. I can take that a lot of ways. Right now, I'm beginning to think I have a slight real estate problem. And that's kind of running at the back of my mind. You know? On the addiction side? Yeah, or the yeah, yeah on the addiction <laughs> okay. side. You know, there's probably some, you know. We all do here. 11 so step okay. program or something like that that you can go to to, to say, you know, I'm, my name is Phil and I'm, <laughs> I'm addicted, addicted to, to real estate. estate. <laughs> that's awesome. You, uh, you mentioned uh, 12% being one of your, what you're trying to capture on, on this whole endeavor. Do you have any other deal breakers besides the 12%, which is obviously a very important one? I'm pretty open now. I, what I like to do is to kind of balance my portfolio. So I'm beginning to say, well, okay, can I take some some geographies that are relatively close by but aren't immediately in this area to, to disperse my geographical risk? So I'm starting mm-hmm. to go 10 miles away or something like that to pick up opportunities like that. And I'm playing a bit. I'm looking at, at um, apartment complexes, nice ones in good shape as a way of just exploring more to try different formulae. Because initially what I did was I went into this portfolio of 22. They were all single family home mill houses. They were all two bedroom, one bath. There was a great deal of similarity between them and they were all in one city block. So I then dispersed, but I thought, okay, I know this formula of two, three bedroom houses. So let's do those. And 
And I think a great friend of mine said to me, you pay stupid tax. So whenever you go into a new endeavor, you pay a stupid tax. <laughs> you make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes. Well, that's the general idea is you learn from your mistakes. Uh, you, you try and make as few as you, you reasonably can. So if you go into something radically different, then you have to pay your stupid tax again because it's a different stupid tax that you're paying. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to go into slightly different things without having to pay more stupid tax. So for example, I'm not going to go into commercial real estate. Just not going to do it. Don't understand it. Going to make mistakes. You know, sorry, don't need to do that. Not going to do it. I'm going to stay in residential real estate, but I think the apartment complex, while it's not a second set of super stupid taxes, because it's broadly similar and you can see the benefits of it and you can see the pluses and you can see the minuses of it. I think if you, if you look at a situation, you can say, I'm oh, looking at that situation and I understand the risks associated with it, then you're in a good place. If you look at a situation and you say, honestly to yourself, I don't understand the risks associated with this investment, then you know the, the alarm bells should be going off saying, you could do this, but buddy, you're gonna make mistakes. You know, you should yeah. want to do that. So I look at commercial real estate and I say, I, I don't understand the risk profile of this. I don't, you know, I don't understand the tricks. I don't understand what I need to do. Uh, if I look at an apartment complex, I can say, yeah, I get that. I, I see the pluses. I see the minuses. I see all the risks associated with it. Um, yeah, that's good. I can do that. So I know you recently bought a 12 unit apartment. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about some of the risks you thought going into it? And now that you've actually purchased it, some of the lessons you've learned? That maybe you've uh, I don't know the lessons yet because I only just purchased it a couple of weeks ago. So that's that's the honest answer to that question. You ask me that, that in a couple of months time, I'll give you a better answer to it. And we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and you know, um, maybe it'd be ter terrible. I, I really like that specific one because the previous owner was a general contractor and, and he'd invested smartly in it. So when he showed mm. me the property, he pointed out aspects that I could see would see would reduce maintenance long-term. So for example, he'd replace the roof as one with a brand new roof. You know, as opposed to individual single-family homes where you're replacing them all piecemeal and each one for a per unit property is going to cost you more. He had put in new ACs on, on every single one. All the floors were concrete as opposed to wood and they were tiled. So for example, if someone has a, a leak in their washing machine, you just you know, mop it up <laughs> and that's it. You don't have subfloor issues, OSB issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I could see it was more bulletproof. He put in cola toilets, which tend to flush faster. And if they flush faster, you get less blockages in them. So I thought, that's really smart. I'm going to do for all my single family homes, I can translate that. So now that's my policy. Mm. I'm going to buy cola toilets because of what he said. Because So I think you... you you need to be humble enough to see other people's good ideas and capture them and use them. And I could see that, for example, all the, the stoves and fridges were standard sizes. So he had a little unit on the side where he had storage for a spare stove and fridge if someone something went wrong and he had standard you know supplies for because he got all the same toilets uh the you know the the, the the things within them that you might happen to need to replace so there was a degree of standardization i think that was very helpful 
that in single family homes is a little bit harder to achieve. It also demands a certain amount of discipline. And and I think as you you optimize and you learn, you get more discipline. Frankly, when I was in this to start with, I was clinging on for dear life to everything that was going on. Yeah. You know, to the need to finance it, the legal structures, the tax implications of what you're doing, selling houses, buying houses, property management, contracting, you know, the contractors. It was just... Uh, it was pretty intense. So did I optimize everything as much as I possibly could? Nah, nah, that's, that's phase two. <laughs> that's phase that's two. That's the next episode. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can you talk about how you're finding deals? Are you finding through brokers or off market? Like how are you finding deals? Yeah, sure. Um, it depends on reputation and how long you've been in the market for. So initially I, I was nowhere. So it was MLS or Zillow, or, which is both shades of the same thing, but it was all public market stuff. Um, and I think there's some good deals there. I think um, uh, for wholesalers in this particular market, it's becoming pretty hard. A lot of my wholesaler friends are saying, you know, that their hit rate is becoming much lower um, with with the growth in the market at the moment. People aren't so desperate to, to sell. It's a lot more competitive. So I think the gap between your wholesaler deal and your public market deal is a lot less than it used to be. Um, so do I feel like I'm missing out by going just to MLS or did, did I at the time? No. Although I'd got wholesalers who come to me with deals and I'm now doing subject to deals as well from time to time. Uh, and... Um, and I think if you deal well with people, then deals start to come to you. If you know you know that you're not going to screw them down on price, and you're going to meet your commitments and be honest and fair and ethical, then deals start to come to you. So that 12 unit was a, a, an agent who'd sold me for a, a month or two before, and found that it was. He liked dealing with me. So he said, hey, you got first sight of this one. So I got it before it went on the public market. That's awesome. So so I think that's what tends to happen. You know, if you, if you deal with people well, good things will come. You know, you create karma. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, like, it's interesting what you said. When you started out, no one really knew who you were. Mm. It helped to buy a larger portfolio, like buy a portfolio of 20 or 22 houses. Now you've got some reputation and some clout to say, Hey, like I can buy these three or this one house. Uh, it's absolutely believe in my you. favor. Yeah, precisely. I've used that many times. That's awesome. To, to say, I am definitely going to close this. Yeah. I'm not going to flake on you. That's yeah. not what I do. Yeah. I mean, that's important to realtors, to wholesalers, to homeowners. Like when you own 50 or 60 units, that's like, okay, this guy buying my one or two is not a problem. Correct. Can you talk about, I know before you mentioned how you finance properties, it sounds like the smaller ones, you're buying them in cash. At what point do you do the refi to pull your cash out so you can use it again? Do you get them stabilized? Do you renovate them and increase rents and then pull out? Or what does that look like? Um, we haven't had to do that too much. We've uh, I have done the refi once at scale. And with that one, we didn't have to do too much renovation. So this was the uh, the 22. So essentially I bought that cash because of the, the Halloc and the solo 401k. It, it, it appeared as a, essentially a cash transaction. Um, and a lot of them were unlivable. I think five were completely unlivable and, and many were in a 
pretty horrendous state. So I think of those, I think I've fully renovated 15 at this point, the order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. um, so when I'd done a few of those, that was when we decided to, to do the refi. Um, but it was really driven by not so much what state were they in. It was a case of, okay, I, I want to do the next phase. Um, I, I want to pull out half a million from something. I want to create 500,000 from something and, and go, you know, go on a buying spree. I think my wife got bored at that point. And so she said, like, I need some money. Let's go and buy something. And it, it was not sensitive to the degree to which I had done them up if you like it was not sensitive to that at all and what actually happened was once I went to a couple of banks I found it relatively straightforward to uh, actually get this financing it wasn't that hard at all I know a lot of people have really struggled but for me I, for whatever reason it kind of came good I think it you know because we had a strong balance sheet as a family we, yeah. we were in a good place um, and essentially said like, okay we'll take 15 of these properties but they put them through an AVM an automated valuation machine. Um, and so the valuations that came from that were entirely random. They weren't in any way correlated with whether I put money into it or not. And I told them, you know, I, you know, I put this much into money into, into this property. It's probably worth about this now. So they had all that, but now they just stuck it through an AVM and gave me 80% of what the AVM said. So I didn't need to touch any of them. Is the reality. Yeah. Because as long as they have their appraisal that they can, you know, tick their internal boxes by, then they're good. And, and, and so some of them were utterly outrageous, the numbers that came out. You know, I put like 30,000 into it and they came out with, here's a 20,000 valuation. Yet the next door property, they gave me a 60,000 valuation. I'd done nothing to it. So it, I don't know. It was bizarre. Uh, but at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Um, I got the money out that I needed without stressing out over it too much. However, I could have paid up and each one could have been individually appraised and they would have given me, you know, fair appraisals sure. for that. As it happened, we put, we did the cheap option because the appraisal you get to pay for. So if you're paying, you know, 400 bucks per property from an appraisal for that 50 properties, that's a lot of money. That's $6,000 right there without a certainty that you're going to get the result that you want. So I paid about a thousand or something to get a bunch of properties through an AVM. And we just thought, well, heck, we'll give it a go and see what happens. And it was bizarre, but it was enough. <laughs> <laughs> Probably worked I out don't know if there's any learning points from that whatsoever. I'm just telling you how it is, keeping it real, guys. <laughs> yeah, no. You mentioned uh, some mistakes that other investors, just we didn't really touch that question, but what are some mistakes you've seen other investors make? that have led to their downfall or had to sell properties or whatever? Yeah, I, I think the big one is cash flow. You really do have to model your cash flow. If you don't have sufficient funds and you're seeking hard money, then you're going to be paying, a, you know, your 10, 11, 12% or something like that for a limited period. Uh, so... If it's a limited period, what's your exit strategy, number one? Num and maybe you've got a legitimate ex uh, exit strategy, but you need to know precisely what that is. So the other one is, are you buying uh, a bunch of properties that you need to do up? If so, if you're doing them up, have you got the scale of resources? So if you've got a single guy that's doing them up, 
as opposed to a team of 10 people, then you can only go through it at a very, very slow rate, which means you're going to have a bunch of properties that aren't are just going to be sitting there taking your 12% cost, earning you nothing, and you're heading yeah. towards a brick wall fast. And you know it. And you, there isn't a plan B. There is no plan B. You have to sell. And and maybe you'll get saved by the fact that the market is going up quite nicely. And maybe you won't get saved because the market isn't going up quite nicely. You know, I, yeah, I have a friend who who did just fine out of it because he lucked out and the, the market was doing just fine. And so he was saved by that. But he was heading towards a brick wall fast and it could have got ugly. So I guess those are the, to my mind, the big lessons. It's all saved by, you know, you need a healthy attitude towards risk. Now, and I think I think this is really important because I see a lot of investors who do analysis paralysis. You know, I, I became a realtor and I had some friends who I thought, oh, well, that'll be a great client for me. And they didn't because they had analysis paralysis. And they're trying to look at every last detail and sort of, they're just scared. They're just scared. So you need a really healthy attitude of, well, Here's my investment model. It's in, a, it, it's in my spreadsheet. My spreadsheet is honest. It's accurate. I'm brutally honest with the situation. I don't have to get every last cent right, but broadly speaking, I'm going to be sound. And I can scenario model this. You know, what if I put the price up? I can't get it for that price and I can get it for this price. Then, you know, how does that work? If it takes longer to refurb, how does that work? You know, if I get my uh, my financing at a certain rate, then how does that work? So you can scenario model out all sorts of different things. And then you play that individual property scenario modeling into your broader, here's my whole financial life and, you know, here's my bank balance and and here is all the capital I, I have, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you just understand the dynamics of everything, which means you can just be confident in, in your attitude to risk. And you can see with the sensitivity analysis, you know, okay, yeah. if I pay $1,000 more for this property to get this deal, what does that do to my, my, my cash on cash and my, uh, my cap rate? Answer, almost nothing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Just do the math. <laughs> and that's really instructive. So you get your healthy attitude towards risk. What really, really matters, maybe to you, is, well, heck, what I really need is I need that to cash flow within three months. So I'm not going to get the super risky property that is in the horrible, horrible state because I need this to be cash flowing within a certain period. So, so I think you just need to be really aware of your financial dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's smart to model out properties. Can you talk a little bit about what your property financial model looks like, whether it's uh, like vacancy or maintenance or capital expenses? Like, what do you normally model out to figure out what your cash flow is on a property other than like rent and a mortgage or a financing against it? Yeah, uh, what I generally tend to do is um, across my portfolio is is uh, the top of the model is months, January, February, March. Um, I have basically what I've got from a cash perspective at the, at the top of each column. Then it goes to what are my liabilities in terms of um, mortgages and loans that I have to pay off. When you know, you've got things like taxes due, insurance due, and then for every property, that'll be a line item of, of, of okay, what is this, this 
this one's supplying. This is my overall, you know, position statement. And then you can kind of move them. Oh, okay, let's move this property right in terms of when it's cash flowing. But what happens to my mm. cash flow number at the end of the month that's, that's net from this? And, you know, so, okay, if, if, if I move it, if it delays two months in its cash flow, uh, and it has a bunch of costs associated with it that are higher than that. Yeah, that's really easy to model. It takes me, you know, three seconds. And it's like, well, that's fine or it's not. Um, but then how does that affect the overall statement? And how does that then affect, well, if I want to go and purchase another property? So if I want to purchase another property and this one then gets delayed uh, for whatever reason, and there's a turn here and this one needs a month uh, then how does that affect the situation? So you can model things out very nicely and easily. It doesn't take long. It doesn't have to be super advanced. Yeah. Heck, what this spreadsheet took me like an hour to put together. No big deal, but it's a tremendously valuable. Do you have any advice for people that are in the position that you were, where they've got money and they're looking to build a retirement plan through real estate? What's your advice for them on getting started and how not to get lined up with maybe the wrong realtor or the wrong deal? What advice do you have for lessons you've learned and mistakes you've seen other people make doing that? Who've got enough money yeah. to be dangerous? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's an incredibly good question. I think aligning, you have to watch the intent of a realtor. They have to act in your best interests. If they're realtors, they, they will. If they're realtor investors, they may not. Because a realtor investor is also going after deals. They're also got a portfolio of deals that they want to mm. give you. So if they're strictly a, an agent, then you know they're going to act in your best interest. They have to. If they're a realtor investor, that is definitely not the case. So, you know, I'm dangerous because, you know, I, I've got, I'm a realtor. But I could act for my buddies. But I know if I'm acting for them in the in, in the market that I know, I might be going for those deals too. Or I might be pushing them one of my houses. So I've seen a, a lot of that. And it just conflates intent. So I think it's best to get away from that. So I've not acted for other people. I've acted for myself yeah. um, only because I think that's uh, more ethically pure. So I, I think that's my, my, my advice. Fine. There are some great realtors out there who have got access to um, a bunch of deals for which they're not necessarily acting themselves, but they're, they're well connected uh, with the investor community, but they don't have a big portfolio themselves. So I, I think they're great people to go for. Um, so just be careful of intent. Never go for people who are doing uh, dual agency. Never ever <laughs> <laughs> when yeah. do you ever offer that as a carrot to the listing agent as like you can have my end of the um, buyer's commission or never 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 full stop so uh, as a as a realtor with mls deals um i uh, you know i will always take my side as the as the buyer's commission and what you can do is you you can say hey look let's let's do this deal off market if 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 they've got a situation where they want to deal with you and they haven't engaged an agent fine you can do that off market uh, provided that they've not engaged an agent and and that's fine i've i've done a bunch of of that kind of thing before and then it's nice being a realtor because you understand how it works and you understand the contracts and you can use the right contracts and uh, there's there's a power to that um but uh no you, you always play the straight 
pop. Yeah. <laughs> so, so your advice is to find for someone who's got money and they want to get into investing is to find an agent who's not a large investor themselves and that has an aligned intent. Is there any other advice on some things you've noticed that a beginner might not catch on a deal that you've learned over time, like when looking at a portfolio or maybe their first couple of houses? Yeah, I, 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 well, you have to be fairly clear about n- number one, geography. Why are you going into an, into a region? Are you going to do the property management yourself? If you're going to do it yourself, you want to be geographically co-located because you need to grow a team. So what's the scale that you intend to arrive at? Do you want half a dozen properties? If you want half a dozen properties versus one or two, then you probably want to have the ability to have some kind of team. And you probably want to therefore to be, you know, reasonably geographically tight. If if not, you can push it out to a property manager and and you can not worry about that tightness and let them worry about fixing stuff. The selection of a property manager is really important, I think. That's a difficult task. They have to be honest. They have to yeah, and finding an honest property manager is is challenging, unfortunately. If you, if you look in the state of North Carolina at realtors who have had issues with the North Carolina Real Estate Commission, probably 80% of those realtors who've been disbarred, so to speak, have been property managers. Uh, there is, they are, there's a situation that's open to abuse. Mm. Uh, so finding an honest property manager is is, is challenging. Um, so recommendations are really, really important. I, I decided to do it myself, so I'm not going to, I can't speak to that particularly. I, you know, I just, I like to do it my way. But if you're doing it with someone else, then that's, that's a seriously important choice. You know, there's, there's lots that are quite dangerous to tenants. They're quite dangerous to you as a, uh, uh, as a, uh, an investor. So you have to be a little careful. So that's a big choice. If you if you push it out to them, then contractors, who are they going to use? Can you have a relationship with that contractor? Can you choose that contractor? I think the contractor relationship is really important. Me, me as a as a, my own property manager, then that's the a really important choice that you you have to make. Um, if you're not going to go for much scale, then you know you're probably going to be paying close to to a residential real estate upfit rates, and you'll be paying a little bit more. Uh, and you need to be comfortable with that. I think everyone needs to have a good idea of cost. So you need to be able to walk into a property and say, okay, you know, what's my appetite? Do I want a property that is going to be zero cost to me? It's cash flowing today. It'll be cash flowing the day after I purchase it. I need to do nothing to it other than paint the walls. Uh, or is it something that there's some serious stuff going on? Because you need to understand what those costs are because they will be really important to you. And, and so now, you know, what I've learned is the, the ability to go into a property and say, you know, there needs this, 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 and this doing it. That's between twelve dollars and $14,000. And, and have, we have a fairly tight estimate. And so I can I can do that now. It, that, that takes time to develop that. Um, but I think... There are great meetups you can go to and communities that you can go to and people that you can align with that will help you with that. And your realtor should be able to do that as well. So a good realtor will. So that's a good you know, decision point of, you know, let's walk around, let's try out a realtor and let's get his advice. You know, who is be a contractor that you recommend and what's the range on, on the outfit? And he should be able to give you like a, Within ten percent of of how it actually t- turns out to be, yeah, that's that's my view on it. 
So before we wrap up today, we're going to do a rapid fire round where we ask you four questions <laughs> and you've got like 30 seconds to answer. Are you ready? I can't do 30 second answers. <laughs> we'll do our best. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite way to source deals? My wife, Zillow. Zillow. I love it. <laughs> and uh, what's your favorite market to invest in, in case anyone has not heard it yet? Yeah. Okay. Where's Gastonia, North Carolina? There you go. Or Gaston County. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I'm sure there's plenty of others out there. But, you know, if I was to go in Charlotte, uh, my nearest metropolitan area, my cap rates will be half. Simply put, they will be half. And that's a big deal. So a secondary market outside of a major city. Yeah, yeah. For those not I, I in Charlotte. So. That, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, a city that's growing, pick something a little like, bit outside that's a little bit less than popular and uh, you'll, you'll do well. Perfect. Uh, you have to also, really important point, um, some markets, there's, there's huge amounts of economic activities, lots of renters. Some markets, it's very, very skewed. You might have a university town and you can only sell a rental in June and July. And the rest of the time, you know, it's a real problem. So be be very aware of that dynamic for the, uh, the area you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's the book that you most often give to others or recommend? I don't. You don't? No books? No. I've done it all myself. Okay, fantastic. Every book that I've read has been utterly obvious. Mm-hmm. I think it's just broadly common sense. So honestly, it's like I have learned almost nothing because it's just just obvious. <laughs> yeah, There's no rocket science in any of this. You can do it yourself. You don't have to read 100 books. I'm sure you can, but no, maybe I'm lazy, but it's just easy. That's fair. And what's your, what do you like to do outside of work and real estate for fun? Oh, my fun is real estate. I like to travel a, a lot. So yeah, uh, yeah, go on cruises, go, take the car and drive across Latin America, something wild like that. That sounds awesome. Well, Phil, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been awesome. Where can our listeners learn more about you or follow your journey or maybe connect with you? You know, I, I mentor a few people, so um, I'd be happy to chat with with people if you one on one. I prefer a one on one chat than anything else, um, uh, but that, that's entirely feasible. Um, my number is nine eight zero three three eight zero four four one. Maybe I want to change it after this. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely uh, link in like your LinkedIn profile, which is probably a good place for people to connect to you. Is there anywhere else that you'd like? No, that's fine. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thanks again, Thank Bill. you. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.